Previously on American Thought Leaders. I was always told vaccines are safe. And if the product is safe, why do you need to give the manufacturer essentially immunity to liability for the injuries that that product causes? In part one of my interview with Aaron Siri, managing partner at Siri and Glimstead, he breaks down how vaccine manufacturers secured unprecedented protections from liability three decades ago. Now in part two. Think about this business model. You have a vaccine, you can't be sued for harms, you have a guaranteed market because kids are required to get it for school, and your health agencies promote it for you and defend against any harm. He breaks down what he discovered in the clinical safety trials of other vaccines, such as one of the hepatitis B products. 147 kids, five days of safety monitoring after injection. There's no indication there was a control group. COVID-19 vaccines, they call rushed. They said the clinical trials were rushed. But the reality is, clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccines that you know, the average American received, compared to the clinical trials for almost every childhood vaccine, were the most robust studies that have been done on vaccines. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelik. You're flipping the way I've been thinking about all this on its head, okay? And let me explain why. You have all these doctors out there, right, that are saying, you know, whether it's early treatment. I want, I was doing early treatment. I was saving people. The, my hospital stopped me. I had, I had better results than hospital protocols. They stopped me. They did not let me, you know, doctors in tears, Dr. Paul Merrick, you know, you know, created the sepsis protocol used around the world, you know, couldn't do his work. And their world has been shattered in many ways and their whole paradigm, their view of medicine has changed. What you're telling me, <laughs> I think, is that this has happened in the past just on a much smaller scale and that what we've seen is not that different. Is this what you're telling me? What I'm telling you is that, is that from my vantage point, What's happening with COVID vaccine is not different, very different than what's happened with other vaccines in the past. The difference is the public's interest in this particular vaccine and at least some segments of the media's willingness to cover an alternative, I'll call it, or, a, or, or, or the views of those that are not just lockstep with pharma and the health agencies. Having been involved with you know, these products, and I, I just have to stress that. These are medical products sold by pharmaceutical companies for a profit that have no immunity, for, have immunity to any injury. They're not given by to Moses at Sinai. They have no magical properties. They're just a medical product that have a certain safety profile and a certain efficacy profile. And there's a reality to that. And then there's what you're taught to think those two things are. Okay. With that said, COVID vaccines didn't enter into a vacuum. They were rolled into a very long established paradigm and way things are done with regards to vaccines in America. People are shocked that you can't sue a COVID manufacturer for injuries from their vaccine. Does not create a moral hazard. I mean, that disincentivizes them from doing a proper clinical trial because their interest is to, to make as much money as possible. That disincentivizes them from studying safety. Sure it does. 
course it does. But that's the same with every other vaccine. And those vaccines are given to babies who can't talk, can't describe their symptoms. And it's given to a very small cohort and it's rolled out over time. Well, but, but presumably because you will see a safety signal early on in that small cohort and you can stop the use, which has obviously happened, right? Of vaccines that have, that have significant harm. See a safety signal where? Well, you tell me. Yeah. So let's, let's step all the way back then, okay? And let's just look at product safety. How do we assure, we, we talked on this a lot earlier in this, when we started here, but there are basically two ways you assure product safety. The way you really assure it is letting class action and product liability attorneys sue the manufacturer if their product has a problem, if it has an efficacy issue, or it has a safety issue. That is how you assure products are safe in America. That is what makes products safe in America. That is why your car is safer. That normal market force has gone away. All the class action attorneys, all the product labor attorneys have been neutered. They can't do anything. They have no incentive to sue the pharmaceutical companies to make them safer. It is not only the suits that assure the products are safer. It is the threat. It is the potential of those suits, of that liability that assures the products are safer. So you have taken away the normal, the primary, the way we really assure product safety in this country. Gone since 1986. There's a secondary way we assure products are safe in America. It is a far weaker way, and that is regulatory oversight. We have regulators. Even in the car industry, we have regulators. They do some good. But here, those regulators are completely conflicted for two reasons. Number one, the very same department of the United States government, the Department of Health and Human Services, that is the department under which you have the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, go down the list of over 20 health agencies. They all live in that one department. That department is responsible for promoting vaccines. And yet they also made it responsible for the safety of vaccines. Those are in conflict. If you tell an agent's department, promote this product, and then you tell them, well, sure, it's safe. <laughs> Finding any safety issue undermines the promotion function. That is why whenever there has been a department in the United States government that is responsible for promoting an industry, the Congress has taken away the safety function. The Department of Transportation is responsible for promoting aviation. That's why the NTSB was created, the National Transportation Safety Board, completely independent of the Department of Transportation. They're completely independent. That's responsible for safety. Similarly, nuclear power. There's a Department of Energy that, that promotes nuclear energy. There's a completely separate department, completely independent. It's responsible for regulating nuclear safety, uh, 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 power plant safety. But when it comes to vaccines, one department, first problem, second problem. And I don't know any other product that has this problem of, of any kind is that, and I mentioned this earlier, in 1986, when Congress gave 
vaccine manufacturers immunity for injuries caused by their vaccine products. Not just the three that were hurting people back in 86, but any of the future ones. And, we're, and you go look at the childhood schedule, there's a lot more. It's a gold rush in many ways. It provided an avenue for people to get some financial relief. And that was creating the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which is within HHS. And who do you sue? I mentioned this earlier. You sue the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. That's what our firm does every day. We sue on behalf of people injured by vaccines. And when we do, we literally name the plaintiff, their name, versus the name of the secretary of the Department of HHS in his capacity as the department, the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. The very same department that's responsible for safety. Think about that. You are making it so that if the CDC or FDA or NIH publish any study that shows a hep B vaccine causes X issue or any other vaccine has a problem, you have just created the evidence against yourself. HHS will have just created evidence to indict itself that then make it liable in the vaccine court. There's an entire specialized department in the Department of Justice of attorneys who just fight against people injured by vaccines bringing a claim. So before we talk about that for a second, I just want you to really put that in perspective, okay? It's so bad. And so our health agencies are really, in many ways, they're hopefully, hopelessly conflicted. They are in a position where they focus on the promotion function really well and the defense function really well. And that has subsumed what they do, where the safety function has basically become a PR issue. That's what it is. And anytime they do safety studies, they're never studies to really show that it's safe. They're reactionary to a PR issue around a vaccine. And, and, and if you look at the vaccine safety literature, you'll find that. So when COVID vaccine came around, it loaded onto this same exact paradigm. Our health agencies for decades now have been so attuned to just promoting vaccines, defending vaccines. COVID vaccine just slots right into that. What about this whole natural immunity? This is one of the things that made me question a lot of things, right, early on, when the natural immunity was denied, right, that, 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 that it was a thing for this disease, whereas it had been for every, every other coronavirus, it was fine, right? Early on, I wondered, well, okay, you know, it did come from China, it likely came from a lab. Is this maybe the reason? I don't know, right? But very quickly, we found out that, that natural immunity was a thing, in fact, and it was very effective. <laughs> so what, was it just standard operating procedure, you're telling me, for, for, for the, the promotion arm of these agencies to basically deny natural immunity? You found out that natural immunity, you mean the thing that's kept humans alive for forever is a thing? Yeah. Well, no, no. I mean, it's, like, it's, I mean, you, the do default. Do, do you the, see what I mean? This is the narrative that, 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 that is being pushed on the American public. This idea that natural immunity is something that needs to be verified, that needs to, you know, health authority approval. With all of our tax money in the health agency and billions of dollars of federal uh, of pharmaceutical company revenue every year, those machine is able to turn 
And there's really no monies on the other side pushing back on any of that. So they can almost push almost any narrative. Frankly, um, with the exception of brave journalists like yourself, and I mean that, you and many others who are willing to actually look critically at these health agencies, despite the potential costs that you might pay for doing that. But, uh, but to answer your question, do they just uh, deny natural immunity? I found the way that the health authorities dealt with national immunity to be not uncommon in that they decided on the narrative they want, and then they have a review process for the studies they put out. So the MMWR, which is the uh, CDC's equivalent of, a, of what they, basically their journal, their science journal, I call it a newsletter, but they call it a science journal. And it doesn't go through peer review. It goes through CDC's clearance process. So everything that ends up in the MMWR, which then gets touted all over the news, CNN, MSNBC, pick those up like they're, this is the holy grail of what reality is in terms of scientific knowledge. The MMWR is used as a tool to assure that uh, CDC's policy is then reflected in the science. Policy first, there is a clearance process to review all studies that published in the MMWR. And that's not me saying that, you can look it up. It's the CDC's available, its own literature explains this. And only if the quote unquote study, the science, comports with their policy does it get published. So with natural immunity, you're like, is this standard operating procedure? In that regard, it is. They had a narrative around natural immunity that they determined fit in with their policy, and then the studies followed to make it fit. I mean, there were studies involving millions of people out of Israel and other places that showed natural immunity was more robust than vaccine immunity. And the CDC concocted this ridiculous case controls study that they, of one little, you know, small data set that they claim show that natural immunity may not be as good as vaccine immunity. I mean, I, I think that that study drew the ire of a lot of scientists because they actually read it and they thought about it because it affected them, not some baby, them, whether they could keep their job, whether they could keep going to work if they didn't want the shot. So they actually started looking at that science and it's amazing what happened, isn't it? Well, so what happened? Uh, public outrage. Okay, okay. Public right, outcry. Yeah. People were like, what are you doing, CDC? Don't you see all these studies? We had an exchange with the CDC. There is a formal process where you can petition the CDC under a particular section of law, and they must respond. They have to. So um, we, on behalf of ICANN, submitted one of these formal requests. And you can go to ICANN's website and look at this. It's an amazing exchange, in my opinion. We did this early on. And we submitted a request to CDC and we said, look, here's all these studies that show that vaccine, natural immunity is more robust than vaccine immunity in terms of preventing transmission, in terms of hospitalizations, every category. So why does your guidance say if you're vaccinated, it's okay for you to X, Y, Z, you can have your civil liberties, you can participate in American life. But if you have natural immunity, sorry, Charlie, you can't participate in American life. And obviously, it's a legal issue. It's a civil rights issue. Those CDC guidelines affected whether you can go into a restaurant, whether you can have a job, whether you go to school. They made it a legal issue. And so that's why we formally petitioned them to say, you have brought this out of the realm of just science, and you've made this something that impacts civil rights, individual rights of everybody in this country. So answer to this, 
How in the face of all of this data can you say that vaccine immunity is okay for you to participate in American life, but natural immunity is not sufficient? And they responded by ignoring all that data and citing that one study, one study of these few hundred people that wasn't even a cohort study. It was, I don't want to get into epidemiology. Every epidemiologist who's got any integrity tells you it's garbage. It's ridiculous. And, and, and even if it, it happened to be, uh, it's a, you know, a chance finding, it's of no weight in the face of the studies involving millions of people. But yet that's what they responded with. We then replied to them and they never responded to our reply pointing out the ridiculous nature. And you can read that exchange. I think at this point, I have to go back to this you know, incredibly disturbing thing you told me okay. um, earlier, which was that there's these really short safety study times for childhood vaccines. So what, what, what do you mean by very, very short time period? Because I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm asking, because people typically say, well, it takes 10 years to, or many years to develop a vaccine. People said, well, there's no way they'll be able to develop these COVID-19 ones because how will we know? Say, you know, these safety studies take a long time. So explain to me what you're saying here. COVID-19 vaccines, they call rushed. They said the clinical trials were rushed. They said the development was rushed. But the reality is the clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccines that you know, the average American received were compared to the clinical trials for almost every childhood vaccine were the most robust studies that have been done on vaccines. Let me tell you why. Okay. I'll tell you why. One, when people talk about other vaccines and they say, oh, it took a decade to develop it, they're not talking about the clinical trial done in human beings to assure that it was safe and effective. They're talking about the timeline it took to develop the technology needed to create the vaccine. Recombinant hep B vaccines, for example, which are a DNA vaccine, it took a long time to create that technology of taking the DNA from the you know, hepatitis B and then putting it into a yeast, growing it in yeast, and getting that DNA to multiply and then injecting it in. It took a long time to create that technology. But that's different than how long the clinical trial then assessed its safety and efficacy before you licensed it. So when it comes to COVID vaccines, the technology needed to actually create the mRNA vaccines, that also had been going on for decades. In the same way, it took over a decade to create the recombinant technology to create the hepatitis B vaccines, as an example. What's critical, though, is not how long it takes to create the technology. Is that once you've created it, what is its effect in human beings? That is what's critical. And how do you assess that? You assess it in a clinical trial where you give one group of people the product, the experimental product, and you don't give it to another group of people. You give them instead a placebo control, a saline injection. And then you compare the total health outcomes between those groups. That's how you look at the F, study the efficacy and you study the safety. Okay? And there are three critical components when you think about a clinical trial and you're and assessing was it a good clinical trial? Was it able to really assess those two things, efficacy and safety? 
first component is how long did it review safety in the clinical trial? COVID vaccine trials reviewed safety for over six months. Second thing you looked at, how many people are in the trial? Meaning how well powered is it? The more people in the trial, the more likely you are to pick up a safety signal or an issue. So that's the second factor you look at. Third factor you look at, what did the control group receive? Or was there a control group? Because if you don't have one that's basically getting something inert or, or, or something that you, has a clearly defined safety profile, well-known, well-established, you don't have that, what are you comparing? If I compare giving you anthrax <laughs> with another anthrax, or you know, giving you arsenic with giving you arsenic, or comparing arsenic with shooting you, maybe they're equally as safe. Mm. They both cause the same amount of harm. But that's why you need a proper control group. COVID vaccines, for the first thing, over six months of safety reappeared. We said 30,000 people, and they had a placebo control group for an average of two months. We know that at some point they vaccinated the placebo control group, but at least they had one for an average of two months. Let's look at, for example, the hepatitis B vaccine given to babies. There are two hepatitis B vaccines given to babies when they're first born, first day of life, and then at one month and at six months. One is made by Merck Recombivax HB, and one is made by GSK Endurex B. Those two. Before I tell you how long the safety was, before I tell you how many kids were involved, and before I tell you what the control was, let me just say that what I'm about to tell you if you told me that what I'm about to tell you, I'd say no way. I don't believe it. Here it is. 147 kids, five days of safety monitoring after injection. There's no indication there was a control group. COVID vaccines have over six months of safety review in a clinical trial that relied upon by the FDA to license it. Hepatitis B vaccine given to newborn had five days of safety monitoring after injection. 30,000 people in the COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial for Pfizer, even more for Moderna, or maybe I have that backwards, one of the two. One had, one had about 45,000. Hep B vaccine, doesn't appear there was even a control group. And even if there was, what are you gonna do with 147 kids of data? If the injury, unless the injury is like one in five, or one in three kids, All right? Uh, it strains credulity, you're right. It and, does and, strain credulity. Would you like me to, right? sh and, 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 and let me just, for anybody watching this, don't take my word for it. Go to the FDA website. In fact, can I show this to you? Can I show it to you right now? Yeah, please. If you go to FDA licensed vaccines, go to Google and you can search for, or go to DuckDuckGo or your search engine of choice and search for FDA licensed vaccines. The first result will be a page on the FDA website called Vaccines Licensed for Use in the United States. And I've got it actually open right here. And I'm gonna scroll down to hepatitis B and Recombivax HB. And I'm gonna click on it. And then I'm gonna click on the package insert. And in the package insert, you then go to section 6.1. Section 6.1 in all these package inserts is the clinical trials experience. You know how when you get a drug, there's a piece of paper inside, you open it up? Well, section 6.1 is where you, the FDA requires the manufacturer to explain the clinical trial experience. And that's where it'll tell you what was the clinical trial? And I will read to you exactly what it says regarding the clinical trial in infants. It says, quote, and again, this is on the FDA website, 
This is Merck's package insert for the Recombivax HBV, hepatitis B vaccine approved by the FDA. And it says, quote, in three clinical studies, 434 doses of Recombivax HB, five milligrams, micrograms, were administered to 147 healthy infants and children up to 10 years of age who were monitored for five days after each dose, period, end quote. Now, I will tell you, when I saw that and when the folks at ICANN saw that, we also said, it cannot be. It can't be. So we FOIA'd the FDA for the actual clinical trial reports submitted to license this vaccine and Endurex B. And we have them. And I can confirm to you, the monitoring for safety was five days after injection for a product given to newborn, one month old, six month old. So yes, uh, I think the word I said was ridiculously short. Yeah, I stand by that. I would say five days is ridiculously short. Oh, and by the way, the other Hep B vaccine, Endurex B, safety review period, and you can look, everybody can look this up again, just like I did for Recombex B, four days of safety monitoring after the shot, four days. These are the only two shots that a newborn can get in America. That's the first shot they get in life. So yeah, I'd say ridiculous might, might be too soft of an adjective to describe that safety review period. And again, we FOIA the FDA, we have the clinical trial documents for both of these vaccines, just like we did for the Pfizer clinical trial docs. And it is that safety route. In fact, on behalf of ICANN, we have actually filed a formal petition with the FDA to either do a proper clinical trial of this product or withdraw the licensure. Um, they have a six months under the law to respond that six months has long come and gone. And despite our constant follow-up, they, they have not given us a formal response. We will soon be suing them in federal court over this exact issue. Either do the proper clinical trial, because Congress said you are only to license products that are proven as safe and effective. That clinical trial cannot do that. How long do you need to do safety? How many kids? What should the control receive? There's probably gray area. But five or four days, that is definitely in the area that's not sufficient. And that's probably why, despite well over a year, I believe, at this point, the FDA has no response to our formal petition. Because what are they going to say? How do you justify that? Has anyone tried to justify it to you? Uh, well, I I'll tell you the answer, because I pondered this for a long time. I it really troubled me. You know, my presumption is that most people in quote-unquote public health are good people. How could the FDA have done this? Why would the FDA have done this? Right? I mean, it doesn't make sense. I'll tell you the best I could come up with is the following. When you look back into the 80s and 90s, when pretty much half of the vaccines on the current childhood schedule were added, and in the early 2000s when most of the rest of them were added, when you look at the people who sat on the FDA and CDC vaccine committees, many of them had serious pharma conflicts. Many of them were consultants. 
Many of them worked for pharma. The very people who were essentially, effectively, deciding whether or not the FDA and CDC should add, license the product for the, on the FDA side and the CDC side recommend the mental health schedule were highly conflicted. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying that probably clouded their judgment. And they, you know, were of the minor. You know, vaccines are the holy grail. I, I don't want to make excuses for them. I don't know. And by the way, that's not me saying that these folks had high conflicts with pharmaceutical companies. In 2000, there was an oversight committee, congressional investigation into the FDA and the CDC vaccine committees. And they found that the majority of the members had significant ties to pharmaceutical companies. You know, some of them had, were receiving you know, million, you know, seven figures from them, consultants, all, all kinds of issues. I recently deposed an individual actually who um, is actually the head of one of the four safety systems at the CDC, okay? The, uh, uh, and um, she runs it. And this uh, doctor is also sat on the uh, uh, FDA and CDC. She was on the FDA or CDC vaccine committee from 1991 to 2000. And I had an opportunity, like I said, to depose her. And so before the deposition, I, you know, we went and we looked at all of her, her published studies. And when we looked at those published studies, what we found was studies that reflected that at the same time she was sitting on the FDA and CDC vaccine committees voting on, on these products, whether to license them or recommend them, she also had significant conflicts with those same companies disclosed in her peer-reviewed studies. I'm not the first one to raise that issue, right? That congressional report raised it in 2000. Another report by the HHS Inspector General, I believe it was in 2008, raised it again. This same doctor that I just told you about, who is the head of one of the vaccines, the safety systems at the CDC is also on the vaccine safety monitoring board of the Pfizer COVID vaccine. She presents to ASIP. She's, she's on the head of one of their safety systems. And at the same time, she's paid by Pfizer to be on their quote unquote independent vaccine safety monitoring board overseeing the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine during its clinical trial. That board is effectively five people. I think they added two people over time. But she was the, the vaccinologist on that committee. They have other disciplines, EPIs and so forth. She was the vaccinologist on it. She was the person that this country was relying upon, basically, to assure the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine while the clinical trial was rolling out. This committee is supposed to be independent. Not only was she part of the head of the CDC safety system while she had that position, directly before being on the independent data safety monitoring board for the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, guess who she was a consultant for? Pfizer. When I think of an independent data safety monitoring board, I don't really think of it as having the head, the, the vaccinologist on it, having directly before being a consultant for the very company that you're not supposed to be independently evaluating the safety of the clinical trial, and at the same time, having all these conflicts vis-a-vis -vis CDC. That's just me. Well, the, the thing that really jumps out to me right now is that these types of conflicts for a long time, and clearly not enough has been done 
to change that reality? Well, our health authorities have all our money. It's called taxes. They have billions of our dollars. And they deploy it to, to tell, the whole, tell the public, safe and effective, safe and effective. That's all they tell you, pretty much, over and over and over and over again. And they use the MMWR to create science studies. And they otherwise don't engage in doing any studies other than those that seek to affirm their policy objectives. And then you have the pharmaceutical industry that's a revolving purse of billions of dollars every year selling these products. And they have really great PR firms down in Park Avenue, Manhattan, right? They do an exceptional job for them. So you have the pharmaceutical industry with th that, that is, pumps billions of dollars every year. There's getting billions of dollars. You have, the you have the health agencies and they are all on the same page. Who is on the side of vaccine safety? Who's assuring it? Again, normally it would be the product liability lawyers pushing back on the pharma, but that doesn't exist. Or it would be the regulatory agencies pushing back on the industry, which doesn't exist. Who's there? Who is there assuring the safety of childhood vaccines? There's over 1,400 pharma lobbyists in Congress. How many vaccine safety lobbyists are there? Zero, as far as I know. There is no moneyed interest that assures the safety of these products like there is for virtually every other product. You may not like them, but product liability lords and class action attorneys have a really important societal function. And they're not here. They're out of this picture. Drugs come off the market all the time. You think pharma companies do it because they're altruistic? No. They do it because they're sued, or there's a threat of liability. Or maybe even the regulators do their job with drugs sometimes. And here's even the craziest part. For almost every other product, when there is a nonprofit organization or a group that seeks to assure the safety of that product, you have consumer groups that want to make cars safer, want to make drugs safer, want to make various products you deal with every day safer. They're lauded, typically. People appreciate them. They view them as a public service, they're appreciated. Even if you don't necessarily always agree, you, you, you wanna make food safer, they wanna make food less contaminated, they wanna get rid of toxins in the, like, they wanna make our product. People typically appreciate it. But you wanna make these products safer? Oh you're, my God. You're, you're an anti-vaxxer. You, you, you get labeled with that pejorative and far, and, and, and others. But really, at the end of the day, these groups out there are fighting a, 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 to, for everybody, even, even those who don't realize it. ICANN, the nonprofit we represent, they're not looking to take a vaccine away from anybody. They're not looking to pass laws that prevent you from getting shots. They're not looking to pass any laws. They're 501c3. Everybody out there right now in America who is saying to themselves, everybody should have to get them. I, they're great. I love them all. Great. Maybe you love them. Maybe you love every vaccine. Maybe you love having to wear masks. And maybe you love having to engage stay-at-home protocols. Maybe you love every one of these coerced medical interventions. What happens when the day comes that there's a product you don't want? Then you'll appreciate I can. Then you'll appreciate all of these folks who have been fighting to assure the right to inform consent and bodily integrity for your right to say, 
No. Because at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to fix the clinical trials. They're done by pharmaceutical companies. They've got a revolving cash of billions of dollars every year. Unless you take away their profits, that, that machine's not stopping. You're not going to be able to assure that the health agencies don't have conflicts unless you can undo the 86 Act, at a minimum. With 1,400 lobbyists, the pharma has, and I don't see that happening. So that conflict in, 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 our, in our health agency apparatus is not going away. So you're not fixing that, most likely. You're not going to be able to fix the litany of issues that we've discussed over the last, I don't 45 minutes. So at the end of that long train of issues, there's one thing that has to remain sacrosanct, something that this country was founded on. It's an individual right. The individual right to say, no, I don't want that product in my body or on my body. Whether it's a drug, whether it's a vaccine, whether it's a mask, whether it's anything. No. And it's the ability to say no that is so critical because it is the last stop on that train to protect you and your child from a product that you might think harms you or your child. If you can't do that without being kicked out of school, thrown out of your job, being excluded from civil society, then you don't really have the right to say no. That is incredibly dangerous. Pharmaceutical companies are very, very smart. You let that platform exist, that platform permits them to not only have a liability-free product, they have a captive market. Think about this business model. You have a vaccine, you can't be sued for harms, you have a guaranteed market because kids are required to get it for school, and your health agencies promote it for you and defend against any harm. It's an incredible business model. You let that keep going, you let that extend to other drugs, other interventions, to the adult population, they're smart. They will load as many drugs as they can onto it. And you've watched it happen over the last two years, and there's no intent to stop it. So, people, I hope, will come to appreciate these nonprofits who are fighting for the right to informed consent, fighting for the right to bodily integrity, and, and, and hopefully one day, maybe not today, we'll, we'll recognize that what they were doing as an incredible public service. Aaron, I have one final question as we finish up. You know, there is this uh, subcommittee on weaponization of the federal government, which has been formed. And this, what you described to me, I think could be, could be conceived of as a kind of weaponization of the federal government. Um, if you had a you know, wish list of what this committee would do, what would that be? In the framework of the, what we've seen over the last two years, uh, there would be a number of things. But one, it would be that the, uh, the federal government would stop engaging in any of the coercive measures they're, they're currently engaged in to coerce people to get medical products that they don't want. That has to stop. Whether it's by presidential decree, by regulatory mandate, or by the use of the purse to bludgeon states into doing things they may not even want to do by requiring vaccines or they're going to withhold funds or whether you have to require masks or they have to do something else. Second, 
The federal government has to get out of the business of violating the First Amendment. They need to stop trying to control what media does, says, trying to get them to censor. Social media is there to make money. Facebook, Twitter, all of these platforms left to their own devices. They want as many users as possible. They wouldn't have deplatformed folks who are basically saying stuff which, when certain people go on CNN and say it, it's fine now. When folks were saying over the last year and a half, they had to be thrown out of social media. It is destructive to our democracy. It is destructive to the whole entire notion of free speech, which is a founding principle of what makes this country great. And from there, I would eliminate any live immunity for any company making any medical product, period. If they can't make a product that's safe enough and effective enough such that the amount of revenue they're generating doesn't exceed the amount of harm measured by dollars, how else are you gonna measure it, that it causes, then they should be out of the business and they should go make a better product. So I'll give you those top three. I could probably keep going for a long time, by the way, but I would stop there. And I, I mean, and the other thing too is that I, I, there just needs to be a return just broadly to respect of individual and civil rights. It is, I, I gotta say it again, it is a lack of respect of individual and civil rights that has wrought more harm on humanity when you look back over the ages than anything else. It is the idea that a king, a lord, a noble, or some centralized government can make decisions for you, can take away your right to decide. That has caused more harm, more death, more destruction than anything else in human history. It was the, this creation of this country was a rebellion against that principle, that notion, the notion that we are not free and that we should have individual and civil rights and that the government shouldn't be telling us what to do. Up until a few years ago, I think a good portion of Americans understood that when the US Supreme Court found that neo-Nazis can, as long as there wasn't violence, walk through a Jewish town in Illinois and be able to say what they want to say because that is free speech under the First Amendment in a public street. Most Americans understood that protecting the rights of those neo-Nazis, as deplorable as you might find them, as deplorable as you might find their message about Jews, but protecting their right to say what they want to say, as long as it doesn't lead to violence, protecting their right to say that protected all of our right to free speech. That ethos, that understanding, it is amazing how quickly I think so many people in America have lost that understanding over the last two years. That, that, that the greater harm is taking away those rights. That's the greater harm. And I hope that we can return as a government and as a country to appreciating and respecting those rights because without them, we just descend into all the governments of yore before the creation of this country that have wrought so much harm and destruction. And I would say that that is an overarching concern that I hope this committee looks at, thinks about, addresses, and, and it's my bigger hope in 2023 for this whole country. Well, Aaron Siri, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Aaron Siri and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.